Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Sam Christie. And before we get started, I need to give my listeners a warning about this particular episode. We are going to be talking about violence and surviving violence. And if this triggers you in any way, uh, you may want to skip this episode or just be forewarned. So um, Sam Christie came up on my For You page on TikTok. Um, He's journaling his experience as a young child. And Sam, I really want to uh, welcome you to my podcast. Oh, thank you, Leslie. I, um, I'm not going to lie. I was shocked at your videos. And I think a lot of people are. And I don't think that's your point to shock people. But what you have been through, and what you have witnessed when you were younger than five, after five, and on up till probably at least 16, from what I've read, um, I don't even know where to start. So I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and start and tell me what happened to you. Oh, well, you, yeah, you made me think about Sandy Turpin, um, the woman that my dad killed when I was 16. Yes. And, I, you know, I, I never wanted to be like my dad growing up. I wanted to get away from him. I wanted to have a different kind of life. But he was doing a lot of things that were illegal, immoral. And I always felt like I was getting that on me, like I was carrying his shame or, or you know, and even the beatings. If I got beat, I would go to bed feeling like... I'll do better tomorrow. It's my fault. Um, So when he, when he killed Sandy in front of me, I was standing there in the forest and and I've done interviews about this and we can go into it, but um, I was standing there in the forest behind him and he was standing in front of the fire over Sandy's body and watching. And, and I, I was overwhelmed by this feeling that this is too much, that I can never be a welcomed member of society. Because here I am, and I didn't save the day, you know, and I I felt tremendous guilt for not having the courage to, you know, to try to to fight him or, you know, I just wasn't there at that point. And I I didn't know why. And and so I felt so much shame. And and I've worked through a lot of that over the years, of course. Um, However, that shame still hangs on. I, I have a lot of executive dysfunction and anxiety issues and so it's really important for me to to reveal myself because right. through all the work I've done, I realized that I'm a human. I'm like the rest of you. We're all kind of in the in the same boat, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and the more I talk about it, the more that sinks in inside. So I want it to really sink in for me and for other people who listen by being just as honest and, and blunt as I can be. Sure. Well, let me let me say something to you, though, Sam, real quick about you feeling guilty. And, and, and I, I understand that. And I think that would probably I'd probably feel the same exact way. I'm not gonna lie. But I do want you to understand you were indoctrinated and brainwashed into that kind of thinking, that unmoralistic way of thinking about yourself, your feelings. So because of that, it's like any abuse survivor or a violent survivor it takes a woman to leave a man just in a, a normal domestic abuse, which is a normal um, relationship seven times before she even can on average. So the fact that you were a child still at 16 and witnessing the death of your father's girlfriend at the time, uh, and we're going way ahead of what happened. So let's go back to when you were a child, when you were five and or when you have those memories of, I know your dad was very, very religious, and he used beatings to discipline and to make you learn the hard way. So let's go from there. 
Well, um, I didn't get beat when I was little. So my, um, he killed my mom when I was almost six. And before then he was, so my memories are really spotty, you know, and I don't know how much I blocked out, but I had these just perfect visual snapshots of a few scenes. Um, I remember being in my room and hearing a noise. I'd be playing one of my records. I had these uh, records from Jim and Tammy Faye Baker from the PTL club. The, the Christian music playing yeah. and I and in the memory like I had this visual memory where I can see the record player and I can hear something and it took me a second as an adult like remembering that sound to realize that I was listening to my mom getting beat in the next room and oh and God. you know I know the layout of the house but it, it's like I didn't have a lot of memories of him beating her um, he I saw him uh, hit her in the in the face with a can of beans or mm. peas or something and and it cut her nose open on top, and and I, I, I still to this day I can see it clear as day. I can see her face, and it makes me feel like vomiting again. Uh, but I don't have other memories to fill in around right, that. Right. You know, just these moments. Sure. So the beating was going on. I was fighting him. I remember being in my room, and I'd have a little piece of rope that I was trying to fashion into a, a little a slip knot and a little foot trap so that I could catch him when he went by. Mm. And I know, like, we're all taught to dismiss children as, you know, having not fully formed plans or feelings or ideas. Um, right. But I can remember being very serious. Mm. I really, really, like, no, it wasn't going to work. I didn't know that. I was very serious. I was going to trap him. I was going to stop him somehow, stop him from hurting my mom. Oh. And she never fought him. She always just stood and took it. And when she died, I found myself just stepping into the, that role that she was in. I became the one appeasing him, and from then on, I never fought him back or or tried to attack him. Wow. Okay. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, wow. All right. Um, and I can go anywhere with this, but yeah. yeah. Well, so no, there's a lot to unpack here, and I know that. So, um, and and like I said, we don't have to go through the entire story. We can just talk about, you know, as a child, I cannot even imagine being that young and trying to save your mother while trying to formulate a plan to either stop your dad, trip your dad, hit your dad once you trip him, whatever you had going on in your head. You know, when most kids at five and six years old are playing Red Rover with their friends and not even worried about, you know, anything with their parents and not worried about, you know, I just, I don't even, I can't imagine. So those memories are horrific. So tell me about the time, well, I know you know now, that he killed your mother, but at the time you didn't know. Tell me about the time that, because your dad was a commercial fisherman off the coast of Northern California, yes. And he and your mother would go fishing and all the things. So tell me kind of what, what happened with that. Well, he had a, um, a commercial fishing boat, and then he met my mom. And they had a daughter, and my dad made him give her away. I'm going to move quickly through some some points. that, sure. it, but um, But then I was born a year later. And they were fishing together. So they're commercial fishing for salmon and Dungeness crab and uh, sometimes for albacore on this little 36-foot boat. And so when I was uh, five, almost six, the boat sinks. And she's presumed drowned, um, maybe went down with the boat. Mm. My dad has a, a whole story about you know how it was a tragic accident. I was kind of aware of the problems, but I couldn't really face them. And I look back and I was you know just so quickly moving to just be his best buddy after her death and we things got a little weird and there was some strange um sexual abuse that kind of resurfaced later 
But anyway, after a few months after my mom's death, he came to me one night and, and I remember this. I remember him sitting me down and looking me face to face and asking me, do you want to, school's getting ready to start. Do you want to go to first grade here and live with me in the Valley? Or would you like to move into town and live with your grandparents and go to school there? And I felt this tremendous tension, like I really needed to not insult him mm-hmm. or reject him, but I really desperately wanted to go live with his parents, my grandparents. Okay. And so I told him that I wanted to do that. And I was scared. And I can remember, you know, like I go back into the memory and I just I lose my breath. <laughs> but I but I said it. And he let me go live with my grandparents. And then he went he went kind of off the rails. It was within uh, two years, he had racked up a bunch of charges and a bunch of robberies and violent Mm -hmm. crime, and someone burned the trailer down that we had lived in, in retaliation, and then he went into town and and shot the windows out of 30 houses. Oh, my God. Yes. So he went on, like, this multi-night rampage going to houses of people that he didn't like. He was trying, you know, he had had somebody helping him, Mm -hmm. telling him where the snitches and the cops lived. And that person later testified against him, and he ended up going to prison for that. Wow. So when I was eight, he went to prison, or seven and a half, he went to prison. And those were the best times, because my grandparents were kind of straight-laced folks, and uh, they put me in guitar lessons. I got to play uh, sports, um, you know, and I, I went to church with them, and I, I really enjoyed that that time in my life. People would find out that my mom had died and and I, I would just say oh it's okay I'm over it it was just an accident you know it just happens everything's fine and I truly didn't have any feelings about it like I just was shut off completely from that right yeah well yeah you're blocking it out but I think the reason from what your videos and I were backtracking a little bit I think the reason your father decided to kill your mother from what you now allegedly know um yeah. it was because she really tried to, to escape from him many times. And by then she'd already uh, saved quite a bit of money, like $50,000. And he found out about that. So he decided, okay, no, you're not leaving me. And if, if I can't have you, no one will. So I'll, I think that's what he thought. Maybe, I don't know. And he thought, if I can't have you, no one can. I'm reporting. That's what I think. You do a great job of summarizing it. I, I get kind of lost in the details and the no, no, feelings, no. but yeah. But yeah um, and that, that's my best guess as, you know, the one person who could possibly know. Well, the, the fact that later, because first of all, the guy, he was also on methamphetamine. He was also a drug user. Um, but I read the article that was in your bio. That's it, actually linked in your bio on TikTok. And it was a 2010 article on CNN about the woman, his ex-girlfriend, that, that he forced you to help get rid of the body. And it also talks about the women that he kept in the big redwood hollowed out trees because it was near the redwood forest, which is a gorgeous forest. I can't imagine that kind of horrific things going on there. And, and God knows who else he killed. And before we started recording, you said, the man's a mass murderer. So why the heck wouldn't you think he killed your mom? Of course he did. That's exactly what he did. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I guess it kind of becomes obvious. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, but, and it was just hard to stomach. And my, my grandparents, my dad's parents, definitely supported his official story of an accident. And no one really, you know, challenged that in my world. No one really suggested it. It wasn't until after he died and I had a mental breakdown that a psychiatrist suggested to me that I might want to consider that he had actually murdered my mom. And I was shocked. I argued with him. Oh, no, 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 it couldn't be. But now it it seems pretty obvious to me that he had killed her and couldn't handle being around me. And I, and I also think it fueled a lot of his focus on me in my teen years. 
I can look back now at the things he said. And at the time, I just thought, why would anyone say this? I don't understand. But now I, I get it, you know, that he was holding that knowledge was right in his face that I killed your mom. Mm. And so he would fish for information from me. And I did. I could never figure out where he was going with it or what he was getting at. You know, but now it kind of those things kind of fall into place. With well, and it was yeah, it was based on fear. You've always been a very smart child. Even when you were younger, uh, I think a teacher said you were very gifted and you were a good writer and you were a good speaker and all the things. Even when you were young, so your dad knew you were smart, and I think he was fishing to see how much you knew. And I think he already knew. Uh, now your dad died in two thousand six, but you were thirty eight by the time you decided. You know what? You went to the authorities and you told him about the woman, the ex-girlfriend that you helped bury, correct? That's correct, yeah. I called the sheriff, and um, it was all, you know, I, I've worked so hard since he died. I thought when he died, he would just go away. And really, all of what happened just started bubbling up in my head, and I couldn't shut it off. Mm. And after a few years of that, I, I decided I, I didn't need to keep his secrets anymore. And I did that just for me. I just wanted to be Good free of the secrets. And it didn't matter to me, you know, how people reacted. I would be free. Good for you. So you decided, well, you know what? Now, do you think it was because were you worried about or did you think about maybe the parents of the girlfriend he killed? Were you thinking about them going, you know, they deserve to know what happened to their daughter? Was it more that or was it more about I needed to free my mind of this? It was more, it was, um, certainly I felt good about being able to at least give more information. I, I don't. I had already justified for years why I didn't ever allow myself to think about her or speak her name or, you know, so I already had in my head that there's nothing I could tell that would be of comfort, you know, like your, your daughter goes missing and then I inform you, oh, by the way, she was also, you know, beaten for months to the point where she, you know, could barely respond and, you know, it, does that make it better? I, no. I don't know. And wow. Now, when you decided to go ahead and go to, to the police... Were you afraid the police may charge you with something because you helped? I mean, I know you were older by then, so... For sure. Okay. For sure. And before I called the sheriff, I talked to an attorney I know, and I talked to a priest I know. Mm. And the attorney told me, do not go forward with this information because any prosecutor could decide to prosecute you for it, and that would be a shame mm. because you shouldn't be prosecuted, so just don't tell anybody. And then the priest, I thought, you know might give me more of a moral answer to my question, which was kind of what I was looking for. Right. And the priest said the same thing, like, you know, really? do not do that. You've got kids. You don't want this trouble. It's better if you don't say anything. And, and I, I just kept reflecting on the stuff they had said. And I was a home alone and, you know, not functioning well. I was getting stoned every night and watching Family Guy to make the pain go away. Mm. And then I'd go hide in my room and I had trouble even going out in public and thought I can't just keep living with this all by myself. I have to I have to get it off my chest. And I thought the right thing to do is just to call the sheriff and and so once I once I decided it was pretty easy to do, but I, I was yeah, a little voice in my brain was just screaming, Oh my god, they're gonna send you to prison. Right. But once you've decided to do the right thing, you have to do it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It was that one of those kind of things. Right. I had to do the right thing no matter what. Good for you. I mean, so when you went into the sheriff and just said, listen, I'm going to tell you some things that's going to shock you. And um, I don't know if you're ready for this or not, but I've got to get this off my chest. And I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I've got to tell someone. Is that kind of what you did? Well, the first person I talked to, you know, took down my information and, and said, we're going to assign somebody and we'll get back to you, you know. Yeah. Um, but then the detective, Detective Quinnell, he called me back and we had a lot of long talks. 
and he was really good about it. You know, he later told me that they were, of course, considering me as a, a suspect in the whole thing. Really? Yes, yes. They actually had me go to my, I live in North Carolina now, they had me go to my police department and take a lie detector test and give them a DNA sample. Oh, wow. Just to, uh, you know, just to try to establish um, what was... And honestly, that's fair, you know, but I can understand why they would do that because, come on, they don't know you. They did know your dad had a record and, hey, I wouldn't put anything past him at this point, but they don't know you and they don't know him. So I I understand that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty quick read to learn about my dad. He had 13 jury trials for violent crime. So he had a long, long, long criminal record history in Eureka. So he was pretty well known. And being well-known or reputation was kind of what ended up saving me. I mean, not that they had any evidence that indicated that I was the culprit, but saving me from further investigation. Uh, nice. Because uh, I remember when Quinnell called me. He called me one day and he said, I, I need to let you know that we've had you under investigation. Like, we've been considering you as a possible suspect. Wow. That's why we did all these things. Uh, But he said, I talked to the district attorney today, or his boss had talked to the district attorney, and both offices um, had been overwhelmed by calls from the community, like people who had found out that I was talking with them about all of this and wanted to let them know that, um, here's how he said it. He said, everybody had kind of the same message, that Ernie Christie was, was a crazy nut, and that sounds like something he would do, and is Sammy okay? And so he said because of my reputation in the community, the district attorney decided he would, wouldn't press charges on me for any of this. Oh, that's the best news you've told well, me he today. He yeah. understood, yes, you know, yes. in the, at those levels, kind of what my role had been, you know, a fellow victim in the whole situation. Yes. Um, and I, I got a question, though, for you, Sam. This is something you may or may not know the answer to. So when your dad was growing up, because you said his parents, they treated you like gold. It was amazing. What happened to your dad? What was the derail for him? Was it just his disposition? Did he get in with the wrong crowd? Were they so religious he just couldn't? What was it that was the catalyst to make him so evil? Do you know? Yeah. And I'm trying to frame it in my brain. (laughs) But yes. (laughs) Um, And I needed to know this. You know, it wasn't enough for me to just say, oh, he's evil. He's a monster. Oh, you know, it's like I needed to understand why this all happened. And if it wasn't some magical plan of God to, you know, make me a stronger person, yay, then there must have been, you know, some kind of cause. Right. So here's what I know. There's this tradition in my family um, where the, uh, the fathers will, I've heard about this, my great-grandfather Alexander, he came from Scotland, went to the Alaskan Gold Rush in the uh, 1890s, came back to Scotland, and then brought his new bride, Sarah McCurdy, across the country and homesteaded 80 acres in Northern California. And he used to say to my grandfather, Ernest Christie Sr., I'm the third, I'm Ernest Christie the third, Ernest Samuel Christie the third. But Ernest, my grandfather, he used to tell him, you're not half the man I am. Mm. You're not even a Christie. You're like your mother. You're a McGowan. And then I also know from my dad that that's how... Ernest Sr. talked to Ernest Jr. You're not a, you're half a man. You know, you're not half the man I am. You're not even a real man. You're your mother's son. You're an Ashby. Mm. And my dad was a little shorter. Grandpa was 5'10. My dad only made it to about 5'9. A little shy of 5'9. That's what it said on his driver's license. I think maybe 5'8. He was a redhead and he matured late. So he was kind of a comical kid, the clown, the spoiled brat, too, because his parents were getting into a little bit of money. 
And I think some things happened to him when he was a kid. I don't know exactly what. But when he was 16, he used to tell this story over and over. He was getting bullied at school. They called him Chrissy, and the jocks would all punch him in the arm when he came in and laugh. And, and he was looking in the mirror one morning crying. Maybe this is in a movie, and it's just a story he made up. He might be, just be a nutcase, but this is what he told me. So he was crying in the mirror in the bathroom, and he, he looked himself in the mirror, and he said, I'm not going to let them do this to me today. And he said he decided right there he's going to hit the first one, hit him. Just as soon as they punch him, he's hitting them. And he went to school, and he said he was scared to death, but one of them came up and said, hey, there's Chrissy, and tried to punch him in the arm, and he decked the guy. Mm. And he moved on, and he, he ended up punching two or three of them. And by the end of the day, and when he came home, he was all riled up. And my grandmother said something to him, and he called her a name. And his dad came over and said, I ought to slap you. No, no, I think he had. He ended up slapping his mom. And his dad came over and said, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take you outside. I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to beat you up. And so my dad says he was real scared, but he had just punched two or three guys at school. And he's following his dad down the steps out the front door. And just before his dad made it to the bottom step, he just he decided to tackle him. He pushed him down on the ground, pushed him down the last couple of steps and jumped on top of him and just started wailing on him. And he said his dad covered up and started crying and saying, I couldn't have done that to my dad. You're an evil kid. And my dad just kept fighting. By 18, he would come home drunk and uh, and just beat on his dad, you know, for whatever reason. You know, oh, my just God. Started. He was, uh, Grandma told me um, just a few years, she's passed now, but she told me just a few years ago that when my dad was 18, he came home drunk and his dad said some stuff to him, you know, some critical stuff, you know, and, and my grandpa apparently said just the most awful things to my dad. Not to me, he didn't talk to me that way. Uh, but he comes home drunk, he's mad, and he just gets my grandpa down and just starts beating his face into the heater. They had like a radiator heater. Mm. And he had a hold of him, and he was had hold of his hair, and he was just slamming his face into it. And grandma said there was blood everywhere, and she ran to the kitchen and picked up the phone to call the police. And almost immediately, there was a knife to her throat, and he had a hold of her hair, and he said, put the fucking phone down. Oh, my God. So my dad went, you know, like full-on fuck the world. Wow. Um, well, and the uh, thing is, yeah, well, and the thing is, I don't know if that was when he was doing drugs or anything. I know he obviously was drinking, but it's almost like because his dad cowered away and that's not, I don't mean to say it that way because I don't really think that's true, but he was just kind of defending himself. But in your dad's mind, so he's like, good, I've got control over everyone now. This is my party now. I got control. And it, it's almost like it festered and made it worse. Yeah, his his violence never it just kept escalating. Like yes. it didn't uh, it didn't help him solve his problem um, in a morbid way. I think that's one of the gifts of what I went through is I spent so much time standing there in front of him, facing him, and accepting that I don't get to be in charge of this moment. I don't have any power right here, you know, right. or do I? But you know, he was so threatened by everyone, and I feel comfortable on the earth. Mm. You know, like. It's something that, and I, I keep, I've been meaning, feeling lately like I have to tell more of kind of the ending of the violence with my dad. And it took a long time. After Sandy, I was, so I was 16 when he killed Sandy. Mm. And he turned around. He's at the fire. He turns around and he looks at me and he says, well, there's no way that you're keeping this a fucking secret. Mm. And we drove home in silence. And he went to the couch and I went into my room. He had this uh, needlepoint that my mom had gotten. It's this handmade needlepoint, or I don't know what it's called, but it's a beautiful canvas in a frame mm -hmm. of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good 
to them who are called according to God's purpose. Mm. And in the bottom of, there was a tree growing up behind the words, and in the roots, it said it had Ernest and Claire, my, my dad and my mom's name. So this was a gift she had given, my mom had given to him. And so I knew, you know, that this is important to him, like this is going to strike a, a heart chord. What I didn't realize is that I was bringing out a reminder that he murdered my mom. I thought, I'm going to show this to him and help him remember that this is my mom and we love her and she was lost in a horrible accident and she wouldn't want you to kill me. I thought I was going that way with it, but now I see that I was taunting him. I brought that thing out and I set it in front of the television and I said, it's all forgotten. I don't know anything that happened. I, you know, I have nothing to tell anybody. All things work together for good, according to God, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that's us. So I'm not going to worry about any things. And I don't even know what the things are. And I stood there and looked at him and he said, just put it back. He was more calm after that, but he was, he made me sleep in the living room on the couch. He wouldn't let me sleep in my own room. I was under really constant supervision. He made me change schools immediately so that I wouldn't be around any friends. Mm. And he really monitored, you know, if, if a 23-minute drive to the grocery store took 27 minutes, I was getting a beating. Oh, wow. I, I woke up one night on the couch, and he had the light was on behind me, but it was the middle of the night. It seemed strange, and I turned around, and he was sitting on the other couch, and he was fully dressed, and he had the 30-30 across his lap. And he said, just go back to sleep. I haven't decided what to do with you yet. Oh, my God. So this is what I was living with. He was deciding whether or not to kill me. I was trying to convince him that he needed to not do that. And um, and I was really incapable of leaving. And I couldn't bring myself to trust somebody else with the information. Oh um, and I just thought, well, it's gone. It'll go away. I can just move forward from this and act like this never happened. But he didn't see it that way. He was sure I was going to tell somebody. And I mean, I did eventually. But about a year after Sandy, he decided he's going to kill me. Really? And re yes, he just he t he's telling me this. We're driving in the truck and he's telling me he's decided that he's going to kill me. And he's going to take me down to the boat. We're driving toward the boat base. And he says, I'm going to take you down to the boat. We're going to go down in the forecastle. You're not going to want to tell me the truth, but I'm going to beat all the truth out of you. And then after that, I'm going to have to kill you. Oh my God. But that's what we're going to do right now. And everything inside of me was screaming, but I had like this paralysis about me. Um, and I, you know, went to get out of the truck and I thought I could run. But then I thought, well, what if I trip and he catches me? And then I tried to run. And, and the whole thing was like he had worked it up into this thing. He can't trust me because I must be helping all of his enemies. And I'm trying to trap him. And I'm the one who brings these women and forces him to kill them. Total and he, paranoia. crazy. Yeah, just tons. And he wanted to know who I'm talking to. And, mm -hmm. you know, so so I don't have anything to hide. I'm just I work for him all the time and go to school. That's all I do. So we get out of the truck. I'm afraid to run. So I just walk across the parking lot and I'm thinking, well, I should break away now, you know, but then this didn't seem like the right time. Anyway, you can imagine the long walk. Right. And we went down into the um, the forecastle, and I, I remember how sick I felt inside when I finally agreed to step inside the cabin of the boat. And he stepped in and closed the door and locked it because I hadn't hit him back. And I'd been standing and taking the beatings and just trying to figure out how we, you know, keep moving forward peacefully for my whole life. Mm -hmm. So I just went down the stairs and, you know, he had all kinds of questions about people that I knew, whether I was helping them steal his tools or helping them steal his money 
all these questions, and it's all people that he did drugs with, people that they're his friends. The only reason I know who he's talking about is because he went and picked these people up and brought them to his house. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know them. But I'm standing there like, like he might kill me, and I really hoped he didn't kill me, but I really felt powerless to resist it. And I really felt like, oh, he's not going to kill me. You know, this is just hyperbole. He's just doing theater. And I was used to the I was used to the beatings. Like I, I had there was a lot of blood and I, I saw stars one time. I've never it was just like in the cartoons. Wow. Little five point multicolored stars in a ring around me. And they spun one way and then froze and then spun the other. It was so beautiful. And then and I realized in that moment <laughs> that I really there were moments like that where I, I kind of zoned out. But I had to stay standing up. I, I felt like I've gotta stay standing strong. I can't be weak right and i felt so weak he had a knife mm. a fixed blade knife and he was hitting me in the head with the butt of the handle i have lumps and ridges on my skull still from it oh, um God. yeah I, i'm sorry I'm, i yeah i tried to warn you yeah <laughs> no anyway i made it i'm i'm fine but he's he's hitting me in the head and he's being very threatening and and i after those stars i felt like for the first time oh, shit, I'm really going to die. It's like I could feel this cold curtain. It wasn't so tangible, but I I felt the cold. And I just, in my mind, I just knew on the other side of this curtain is me in the afterlife, and I'm going to be standing immediately in front of God and Jesus and my mom and everybody who's already there. This is what I believed. And I looked at myself, and I was crying, and my bottom lip was sticking out and I had just I know I just looked sad and pathetic and I was kind of folding and I decided I'm not going to stand in front of God looking like a coward Wow! and suddenly I could hear my dad again and see him again and he was saying to me well is it is it and he was getting red in the face and I hadn't heard his question I'd been totally distracted by my my idea of what was coming right and I didn't know what his question was. So I, I decided I'm not going to be afraid. So I relaxed and I just stood straight up and I, I, I made him a speech, something like, you're questioning me about all these people that you don't think you can trust and you can't trust anybody. And I'm here with you all the time. Keep your secrets, do your dirty work, take your abuse. And if you can't trust me, then you can't ever trust anybody. But I'm done answering questions. And I just stared at him and waited to die. But instead, like all the energy just drained out of him, like he folded, he looked down, his face went pale. He set the knife down and just mumbled, go, go upstairs, go upstairs. And I'm sure he wiped the tears off of his face and found the courage to come up the steps, but he didn't say anything to me the whole way home. And yeah, and that, that was, yeah. So I'm an atheist, like I don't really believe in God, but but my faith in God is definitely what gave me the courage, you know, even as an atheist, I whatever, it doesn't matter. I have to find the courage to stand up and not be afraid sometimes. Right. Right. And, you know, whether you're an atheist or a Christian or whatever, that is totally your your call. And I'm not here to judge on that. That is your thing. So no, 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 not at all. I mean, like I said, I I. That doesn't matter to me. What matters to me and what is interesting to me and what just breaks my heart. I mean, I was actually tearing up and I don't usually tear up during interviews. I'm not going to lie. And I, the way you described it, 
I was there with you for that moment. I was there with you. And I'm wondering if my listeners are feeling the same way because I'm telling you that was hard. That was not fun for me. And I know it couldn't have been. I can't imagine what you went through. But um, I've um, never I've never told that story on air. Tame one. Wow. That that was hard. And no, and I and I'm, I appreciate you sharing it with me and feeling comfortable enough to share that with me. Um, because your mental state at that point and your father's mental state at that point was on such a verge of destruction. Uh, It's almost like something got a hold of you and said, no, don't let this happen. And you, you gained the strength, whether it was just from within you or God or whatever. I don't even know. Um, In my mind, it's God, but you don't have to believe that. But I'm telling. Yeah. But I think functionally it was that I was not afraid that I didn't act afraid. It, it, he needed that. My dad used to tell this story, and um, I always I feel bad for shocking people. I, no, but no. It's, um, it's, it's, a, it's so heavy. But he used to tell the story to me like it was somebody else, about, uh, the hitman. I did a, a TikTok video about it. Um, but the, this hitman he knew had, would take people out for a ride, but he had to get them scared. He had to get them nervous. He had to see that and feel fueled by it. And somehow... That my way sense. of looking at it all now, like when I look back, I'm 50 years old. My dad was full of fear and couldn't admit it. And so he felt compelled to make me feel it so he could see it. Right. And he, and he didn't have, he didn't know what to do when I wasn't afraid. Right. And when you were telling me that story, I'm telling you guys, Sam has been asked, I, I don't even know if it's by a publisher or whatever. He's been asked to write a story about this. He's been asked to write a book. And every time he starts... He, he can't finish. And I think he gets derailed. And I think he spins out of control. Sometimes I think um, I, I may be putting words in your mouth. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But oh, no. I that's, that's, that's a good synopsis. Well, and, and I but you know what, I'm hoping that maybe when we get off air, I can maybe talk to you a little bit about how I do things. And maybe that I've certainly never been through what you've been through. But Leslie, yeah, I can I can tell how you do things. I you know, you you make space for me here, and I, I watched your some of your videos. Uh, I, I do feel safe. I've had a lot of years to process all of this stuff, and it's, you know, with the telling, I mean, there's there's a lot of power in it. But, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> it's easy to get stuck on that story. Well, and you know anyway. what? And what's important, and it might be something that that first book Maybe you have someone that's a ghostwriter that you can tell the stories to and that they can at least get the chapters going for you and the, and the chronological things going. And then you can fill in the details because I do think you're a good enough a storyteller. Oh, I know you're going to be an incredible writer. When, when and if you ever want to do it, if you decide to do it, I think well, you'd be. I do. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a thing that I'm, I'm kind of blocked over because of, you know, I mean, surprise, surprise stuff my dad yeah. um, did, right? And I... But this is my way out. Doing these TikTok videos and uh, and yes. talking to you, um, and, you know, and doing uh, shows like just telling the story to a person, I can do that. Right. And sometimes telling a story to someone, even on a podcast, as opposed to just talking into your phone, you've got a little feedback. I know that you get comments and and people are so lovely. There are some people that aren't. I think most of people are lovely and they can't believe it. And who knows what else they feel. But I know when I hear your stories and you're authentic, I mean, what I, I know the difference. I think you do too. I know the difference. And when I saw your videos, I mean, I was glued and it wasn't because I was like, oh, this is cool. This is cool drama. I 
did not feel the kind of torment that you had. But I had abuse in my family too when I was young. And I'm not going to get into that. But I know as a child how you felt in some of those places. I'm not going to lie. I know how you felt um, in some of those places. Yeah, it's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy. And um, anyway, okay, so um, we're going to move on now. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, let's not go there. Let's talk about my book that I'm not. Yeah, let's talk about your book. You're not. Yeah, it's been talking is is to people. And this is, wow, a a great interview. Yeah, oh, or a great. Well, well, thank you. I, I'll be. We've delved deeper into it for me, as far as like getting the story out. Sometimes when I do a TikTok, just like you said, just to the phone, it's like I'm I, I'm just kind of talking to my phone, and it and, and having this back and forth is good, and and so you help me to you know get uh, more out than right, I might have right, you know in right. three minutes on my own. Well, and you know, hey, listen, I I give you kudos for all the things you do, because here's the deal: you're helping more people than you know. Let, let me repeat that yeah. to you, okay? You're helping more people than you know. There are people in this world who have been maybe not exactly in your situation, but you helped me. You made me think about some things that I hadn't thought about in a while. And I, wow. you know, I probably need to work on some of those things for myself. And just that, just that is worth it. I think it's absolutely worth what you're doing. Wow. Wow. It, just, yeah, I mean, that's more than I expected. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's the truth. It's just the truth. And um, I, like I said, I will help you in any way I can if, when and if you want to do this book. And um, as far as, you know, maybe how to, how to go about it and maybe help you find an editor. I don't even know, but we'll figure that out. But I just wanted you to tell your story and I wanted you to make it people understand people can come back from these things. I don't know if you're in counseling or if you've ever had counseling. Are you, are you doing that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I've had, I've had quite a bit, you know, I was pretty unstable after my dad died, but, and, and, you know, my whole world kind of came apart. Yeah. But, but now I'm, I mean, like, I don't have anything. I'm, you know, I, I'm a plumber for a living. Well, hey, you um, know what? Plumbers are, are make great money. So good for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But not, not the guys who work for them, you know? So I, I've been working on getting my plumbing license because the way to make money in plumbing is to, you know, to own the thing. Um, But I've also felt compelled to get my story told for my own personal healing. And I I mean, I'm only now realizing, like like reading these TikTok comments, how many people Mm. or how common I felt alone. You know, you said, you know how I felt when, you know, being frightened as a child. But, you know, when you're a child and you're alone and frightened by your parents or or whatever the case is, you don't know that everybody else is going through that. You don't know that. No, you don't. You think you're the only one that went through the horrific thing you went through and you don't even want to remember it. And when you do remember it, you know, who wants to hear about it? You know, that's not fun. Nobody, no one wants to hear about that. You know, I mean, uh, reliving something that's, that's tragic in your life. Um, but let me tell you though, the fact that you went to counseling, I commend you for that. I think people that don't have any problems in their life, it's good to go to a counselor. Hey, you know, we all get a little weird in our heads. I don't care how good or bad your life is. So some of the stuff I've gotten there has been super useful. Mm. I got some tools that I I use to this day. Um, just simple stuff. Like I learned in counseling that, um, everything everybody says is a reflection of who they are. The tone they use, the words they use, the what they choose to say next, it says more about them than it does about you listening. And I, I had another counselor who I always fought with him on this, but he said, Sam, what if you just assume that everyone is doing the best they can 
right now with what they have. Admit that everybody could be doing better and then make the most benign assumptions possible about their intentions. And it's helped me so much to get along better with the world because I've been, you know, growing up with my dad, I wasn't really socialized properly. No, you weren't. And I've had a, <laughs> a lot of trouble. You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm a chameleon. I, you know, started out with not much of a sense of self, so I can, you know, I can do the razzle-dazzle as long as there's a stage, you know. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah. you know, it's been hard to figure out how social interactions work. No, I understand that. Like I said, you are helping more people literally than you know. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm also going to, do you have any information on, like, are you supporting any kind of domestic violence abuse type of thing, uh, organizations, because I can certainly add that to my show notes for you. I'm going to go ahead and, and add in my show notes your handle on TikTok. If anybody wants to go listen to your videos or just get some information that I maybe didn't provide on the podcast, is there anything that you want to add for this? Oh, well, I don't have an organization. That That's something for me to look into. Yeah, I mean, I have the TikTok uh, and have an interview uh, coming out on Investigation Discovery. Oh, wow. I did Paula's on in 2010 uh, and then a show called Very Bad Men in, the two, in 2012. And wow. then last year I did an episode for a show that's called Evil Lives Here. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I didn't know this. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know what I'll do? I'll see if I can find some of those articles. And if I can, I'll for sure put your TikTok on there so that if you have any of that information, like if you have a link tree or you or you go ahead and invent one, yeah. you know, you I could put... Get that together. <laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, I think it would really be helpful for people to see. Now that you've got us invested. You know, we want to know you're okay. We want to know you're doing all right. We want to know everything's good for Sam now. I mean, literally, we want to know that. So anything you can provide for us, we want to know, right? So get on that, Sam. (laughs) All right. Cool. I can do that. This this is fun. Oh, Sam. But, you know, let me tell you, I got a little emotional there. Sorry about that. But I... um, It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, this is an emotional journey. I'm I'm sitting here... um, realizing I, I feel more like myself mm. telling my stories mm-hmm. than I have telling my stories. You know, I've told them like, wow, there was this kid named Sam, you know, but right. I feel, you know, more like it's the real me. Once, you know, you, I tell another person and you say, yeah, I, I we accept you. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And we want to know you're good. So no, and I, I can't thank you enough for just coming to my podcast and, and telling me your story, this, or at least parts of your story. There's so much more that we could cover. But I think if you guys, if any of my listeners have a TikTok, go listen and go, go like Sam's videos, go, go follow him. And let's give him some love. Let's give him some feedback. And Sam, it's, it's been a journey. But boy, I tell you what, it's been so good talking to you today. It's, it's been kind of healing for me too. Wow. That, that's wonderful. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for me, um, for me too. Well, I love providing because I want to know at no cost. So if you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review or you can just buy me a cup of coffee. It's kind of like a Patreon, but you don't have a monthly subscription and you can give whatever you feel led to give. I am a one-woman show and I do all of my scheduling and my interviewing and my editing. So just know your support is so greatly appreciated. And one more thing, I am a paranormal romance novelist and you can find all of my books on Amazon. Just look up my name. I'm very easy to find. Thank you guys again and I will see you next week.